0: Okay, I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter, uh, I'm sorry, the Gospel of John, chapter 4, and uh, I'm going to pick up uh, our sermon series is on the ancient way, and uh, a couple of um, things I'm going to speak about. First, I'm going to read the scripture here and another scripture, then we're going to talk a little bit about where we were last week, so those of you who are visiting today can maybe have a bit of a catch-up. Um John chapter 4 tells us the story of Jesus and the woman at the well in in Sicar in Samaria and uh you may be familiar with the story if you're not and the Bible is new to you then uh, I encourage you to read the story and also perhaps uh, uh if you need to visualize it uh, there's a beautiful dramatic presentation of this that uh, that outfit that a uh, putting out The Chosen. I don't know if you've seen that TV show, The Chosen. This is a beautiful one of their episodes, actually. It kind of depicts this quite well. Um, but anyway, uh, you can catch that. I think they have an app, The Chosen, and uh, you can actually download the app on your phone. And you can watch the movie. You can watch the series, the miniseries. It's really, really good stuff. And what do they say? Binge watch Jesus, right? <laughs> good stuff. Anyway, John chapter 4, and Jesus is addressing this woman at the well in Samaria, and it's an interesting... Um, A beautiful uh, interaction between a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman. And there's way too much nuance in there for me to get into it and talk about all the details. What I really want to do is lift one little theme, one little idea out of this passage, and then I'm going to read another one. So we're not going to discuss the entire story, but the story is well worth reading. So that's my little caveat. Okay, taking a look at at, uh, what Jesus says to her, Uh, A woman from Samaria, verse 7, came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. It's beautiful, beautiful, this beautiful depiction right there. Living water. Uh, the idea is water that has a source somewhere else, and it's moving. It's not, it's not stored up in a well. It's not, uh, it's not in a in a bottle. It's not, uh, it's not in a pitcher. It's living water. It's moving water. And uh, Jesus says, "I'm gonna. Uh, those who who are thirsty should come to me because I'll give them living water." In other words. A constant flow, a never-ending flow. Anyway, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? What a question to ask Jesus, huh? She didn't know who it was. He, gives, he gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and all his livestock. Jesus said to her, Anyone, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Okay, we just stepped outside of the realm of natural need and we stepped into something different. Clearly, he went from, from practical and pragmatic to figurative and metaphorical. And, uh, and she's not quite sharp enough to catch it right away, but she's going to. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's the verse I want you to pay attention to. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. For those of you who are concerned about uh, gender-related pronouns and so forth in this passage, the him there refers to anybody, all mankind. So he's speaking to a woman, but he is promising not only him, but her. (laughs) Okay, so she is included in this. This is not misogyny at work. Just a little caveat, That was a useless piece of information. You really didn't need that. Forget that. Erase that from the recording. <laughs> I, want turn, uh, I want you to turn in, uh, in your Bibles to uh, John chapter 7. Jesus is going to give a similar promise. John chapter 7 and verse 37. This is during the Feast of Tabernacles. On the, last, on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. Okay, just a quick little mention. The great day, the, the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated in a very unique unique way by the priests. It turns out that every day during the Feast of Tabernacles, priests would march in solemn procession from the pool of Siloam to the temple and they would pour water at the base of the altar. It was part of a... Uh, 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 an enactment, enactment of what would be the fulfillment of the prophecies that God gave to Ezekiel, that water would flow forth from underneath the altar of God, rivers of living water essentially. And so they would act this out because God was supposed to come at the Feast of Tabernacles and Messiah would arrive during the Feast of Tabernacles and, and, and He would uh, bring this redemption. They're not wrong, Messiah will return at the time of Tabernacles according to prophecy, but he didn't come the first time at the Feast of Tabernacles. He came the first time during the Feast of Passover because he was the Lamb of God to be slain, who had been slain from the foundation of the world, and that needed to be celebrated first. That needed to be, that needed to be accomplished first before there could ever be a return of Messiah. Anyway, sorry, little technical stuff there. But during this feast, they would bring the water, they would pour it out, and on the last day... Uh, there was a special day where they would mark the rite with lights, a lighting ceremony, and lots of water poured out. And it's on that day, on the great day, that Jesus stood up, no doubt as they were enacting this, pouring the water out, and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Imagine, can you just imagine, in the middle of the ceremony that's been celebrated for Year after year after year, for decades, for, for, for centuries, they've been celebrating this, since the prophets of, of Ezekiel. And Jesus stands up and interrupts it in the middle with this big loud shout from the crowd somewhere. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. I'm so grateful that John explains to us what the rivers of living water actually are. As it turns out, it's the indwelling Holy Spirit. The indwelling Holy Spirit. Well, there's another passage that I want to talk about in Matthew. And it's in Matthew chapter 15, if you would turn there. Matthew chapter 15. And uh, it's this little passage where Jesus teaches about defilement. And uh, it's in verse 10. He called the people to himself and he said to them, Hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Why would the Pharisees be offended? Well, in the context... uh, They had accused Jesus because his disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate. And um, they said that he he was breaking the commandments, the the, the teachings of the the elders. Anyway, and uh, so, yes, they were offended because he said, well, it's not what goes in but what comes out that defiles a person, uh, which is contrary to the religious ritual and expectation of the day. Anyway, the the disciples uh, are confused. He answers, he said, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted, will be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? I'm going to take a moment to synthesize these scriptures for us in a in a in the context of our, our sermon series, this ancient way. Last week I spoke about authority, and we we were examining this idea that authority is it needs to be established. We need to establish a system of authority if we're going to be good. Uh, followers of Jesus. If we're going to actually listen and obey and follow him, we need to know what it is we're following. And we need to have a conviction in our heart that it's not only worthy of being followed, but that it must be followed, that there is an authority behind it. And uh, authority is comes difficult to most of us, in fact, to all of us. Uh, and uh, and I went through a very brief little explanation of um, uh, of authority structures, and it was just Sort of a binary, uh, you know, two two opposing ideas next to each other that I was using. So let me give you a summary of that of that thought from last week. Um, here's a simple s- summary: There are two forms of moral authority that we looked at. One is inside, and one is outside. Moral authority that comes from the from the inside of an individual is called autonomy, and moral authority that comes from outside of someone is called heteronomy. And uh, these ideas uh, basically works like this. Uh, The example I gave is, let's say, uh, you've heard it said, thou shalt not steal. And you decide, I will not steal because stealing is wrong. Okay, that's autonomy. You have determined in yourself that stealing is wrong, therefore you will not steal. So that is an autonomous decision, and your morality is governed by your sense of right and wrong. Heteronomy, however, is uh, understood as I will not steal because it is wrong to steal because the society has told me it's wrong to steal and I don't want to get caught stealing. That's heteronomy. That's not doing something because society around you tells you not to do it. And uh, it doesn't come from a personal decision as much as it comes from fear of consequence or the imposition of, uh, of of mores from a society around you. Now, the stealing one is pretty uh, is pretty you know benign. We all know that it's wrong to steal. We, nobody wants to be stolen from. Stealing is is wrong. We also know that God told us not to steal, and so forth. But there are other. Uh, There are other things that are perhaps a little more nuanced, a little more difficult to make a decision on uh, than than the obvious black and white ones, the the, the, the thou shalt not steal or the thou shalt not murder or thou shalt not commit adultery ones. There are other ones that are a little closer to home that are more difficult, like thou shalt not watch PG-13 movies until thou art 13. Tongue-in-cheek, of course, but, but you understand what I'm saying. And autonomy is the ability and the decision to make uh, your rules, the way you, you live, to establish your morality based on how you feel. Autonomy is not what the Bible teaches. Autonomy is not what the Bible teaches, although it is certainly what our hearts want. Nobody wants to be told what to do. In fact, we don't like a state that is, that is telling us what to do. Uh, we all bristle against that. Unless, of course, the state is telling everybody to do something that you like doing. If you have autonomously decided this is the way it should be and then the state agrees with you, then yay, yes, let's do that. And we all race into that. But nobody wants to be told what to do when it goes against our own will. But the Bible teaches us heteronomy on a different level. It teaches us theonomy, and this is what we talked about last week. Uh, it talks. Uh, the Bible teaches us that God created the world, and the world is therefore subject to God. God is uncreated. The world is created. There's a separation of authority there. God is not ordered by creation. Creation is ordered by God. And therefore, when God establishes laws, those laws are immutable and universal. And uh, God's law must be followed Or we are subject to the consequences of breaking God's law. And that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that we are God. The Bible doesn't teach us that we should morph our laws based on our however we make that decision, uh, those decisions. The Bible teaches us that there is an ancient way and we must walk in that. And so we've been speaking about this for a while and the reason why I brought up the issue of authority is because I think we cannot walk the way of Jesus Christ unless we are utterly convicted by the authority of God. We cannot truly walk the narrow path unless we are Submitted to the authority of God. But that's hard to do. That's very hard to do. And, uh, and, and I could point out the sins of probably uh, at least one person in this room. Mine. <laughs> and my sins are clearly where I miss the mark according to the instruction of the Lord. Because I make decisions about what I want to do. And every one of us has to deal with this. Whether we are Christians or not, we are Autonomous human beings, nobody actually has say inside of our head. Our own brains, we have this autonomy. There's one person in here, unless we are, God forbid, possessed by devils. There's one voice in our heads, and we listen to that one voice. So we are our own autonomous beings, but that autonomy must be subjected. And we don't do that, which results in sin. The gospel is not about sin, the gospel is about redemption. And that's good news, my friends. But in order for us to understand redemption, it is necessary that we recognize what sin really is. So the pathway that we are looking at, that we want to walk on, the ancient pathway, as we determine whether or not we actually want to put the backpack on and walk for these 500 miles, as it were. uh, the, The ancient way, we kind of need to know where we're starting, where we're going. And which path leads there? I've said in, in a, couple, a couple of sermons ago that there are paths that lead to the destination, but there's a path, there are paths that lead away from the destination. And, uh, and each one of us is perhaps starting in a different place, but we, we have to converge onto this narrow path that leads to Christ. Because we cannot find our own way to him. Jesus said, I am the way. The truth and the life. We are going to the heart of the Father, and Jesus has declared there is one way. I am the way, He says, the truth and the life. So we cannot forge our own way through the through the, the forests and the and the morass and the and the uh, and the, the tundra. We can't forge our own way through this. We must submit if we are to follow Christ's way. This is so simple, and it sounds like I'm just telling you redundant stuff, but. Take a look at the Christian world around you, and be amazed and be shocked to see how many do not follow the way of Jesus. The reason why we're teaching about this is because I want to give you the tools that you need to raise your family in the narrow way. So, Christianity has always been theonomous, and there's two forms of moral structure I mentioned last week: there's anarchy and hierarchy. Moral structure, that is. We can have, uh, we really, we have to choose between one or the other. Anarchy is where there's no structure and everybody does whatever they want to. And hierarchy is where there is a recognized structure where some voices have more authority than others. And those voices need to be given that honor and respect. The Bible teaches clearly hierarchical moral systems. Which means that not everybody carries the same clout inside of society, the society that is the church. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Within a family, not everybody carries the same clout, the same moral clout. Actually, thank God for that, because the three-year-old, if the three-year-old had their way and carried the moral clout in the family, there would be chaos. I mean, there's already chaos with a three-year-old. But <laughs> but there's a parent, hopefully, somewhere very close by that's bringing structure and order, and that... Hierarchy is necessary for families to be healthy, do you understand? The same thing is necessary within the church. But, of course, we're afraid of these things because of all the abuses that, have, that, that we've observed. And, uh, and I don't want to be ignorant of that, but, the, same, but, but, but the, the statement must be made. Just because there has been abuse doesn't make the system flawed. The people inside of that system were flawed and did not follow But the system itself has been established by God, and if it is followed, will lead us to the very heart of the Father. It will, because Jesus promised, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So So the point that I want to make is that uh, Christianity is inherently hierarchical, which means that we as believers, when we come to Christ, have to submit ourselves. Interestingly enough, Jesus didn't Uh, He didn't uh, push the hierarchy in his relationship with us. On the contrary, it seems that the Son of Man, who could have come just to be worshipped, came instead and clothed himself like a servant, took up a basin and a towel, served us. Because he said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And the hierarchical structure of God is not a lording it over us. it's It's a love. Love has hierarchy. Pure love has hierarchy. Pure love cannot exist without hierarchy. So, just to bring some practicality to this, obviously, uh, I mentioned in Ephesians chapter 5 last week, there's the hierarchical structure within a family, there's husband, wife, and children. That's the, 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 the nuclear family in the biblical model. It's necessary for for us to recognize that this has some, some, uh, the Bible has authority and, and that structure is the structure that leads to life. And if we follow that structure and we obey that structure because we love the Lord and are loved by Him, then we will find ourselves much more likely to walk out the peace of God and to live within the peace of God in our world, regardless of the circumstances around us, because the Spirit of the Lord will bless that path. I read to you from Psalm 1 last week and we showed clearly that the blessed is the man who walks not in the path of the ungodly. And we talked about the blessedness, I didn't get to expose it, you know, do the expository preaching on Psalm 1 but, but blessed is the man. God blesses those who walk according to His word and who do not walk according to the ways of the world. We spoke about this when we said the narrow, we we mentioned the passage about the narrow way. Jesus says, narrow is the way that leads to life. There are few on it, but broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there are on that one. Why are we talking about this? Because we as a church need to focus ourselves onto the narrow way. And we need to empower one another to walk on that narrow way. However, however, we must beware. Because as I was reading to you in the the, the Gospels there, we, we found that there is a question, this question of religion that the woman at the well in Samaria ultimately asked Jesus, where am I supposed to worship? In this mountain here in Samaria? Long history to that. Or at the mountain in Jerusalem, at Mount Zion. Also a long history to that. It was a legitimate question, but it was, a, it, it was a sidetracking question. It was a false question. It shouldn't have been the question she was asking. Jesus wanted to bypass the religiosity and get us straight to that place where rivers of living water come up out of her. And it's not through religious observation. It's through drinking from the well that is Jesus. He went on then in the temple itself to display to the priests that were pouring out the, the demonstration. Some, they, they were following Scripture. They were, they were demonstrating the Scriptures, the prophecies in Ezekiel. They're demonstrating them in the temple, but Jesus stops them and says, anyone who thirsts needs to come to me. And then he goes on and in the other passage that we that we read to, to offend the Pharisees by saying that it's not the observation of the rules that brings living water. It's not the observation of the rules that even make somebody clean. But in fact, it's what comes out of the heart that makes people either clean or unclean. So we have to be careful here when we look at this because there is a right way and there is an authority that the Bible has. The scripture has authority. It is the word of God. It is everlasting. Heavens and earth may pass away, but the word of the Lord will never fail and never pass away. So it has authority, but the scripture can be read in such a way and with such a heart that the authority can become dead, not life-giving at all. Because as it turns out, the rivers of living water that need to be flowing from from, from inside of us out is the Holy Spirit. And the scripture must be interpreted through the Holy Spirit in the lens of Jesus Christ. Or else the scripture will not be the life-giving source that we want it to be and that we thought it was. Instead, it can become the exact opposite. The church gains authority in the hierarchy of our, of our you know, th- th- theological world that we're living in. The, the church gains authority only in so much as she adheres to scripture and walks with Jesus. Let's use the sun and the moon as an example real quick. The sun shines, the moon does not. You say, no, the moon shines at night. Yes, the moon shines at night, but the moon shines because it is reflecting the sun. The moon has has no power in itself to emit light. It just reflects the light. In the same way, the church has no power to bring life outside of itself. I mean, inside of itself, it has only got the power to bring life in so much as the church reflects the glory of God. We must be trained as a church to be receiving from the Lord, standing in his glory, and then reflecting that glory out to the people around us. A church that doesn't do that has no power, there is no authority. So the church really, essentially, is to reflect the glory of the divine word of God through interpretation and application. This is how we reflect God to the world around us. It means we need to know how to interpret the scripture, and it needs, means we need to know how to apply that scripture. And only the Holy Spirit can do that, my friends. There were many, and there have been many, over the ages who have tried to interpret scripture There are those today who try to reinterpret Scripture and reinvent things and change the way the Scripture speaks, but without the Holy Spirit, we don't have any glory. So you and I need to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit and the Scripture. We need to have the Word of the Lord, which is right and righteous and pure, refined seven times, uh, as it were. But we need to have the Holy Spirit in our lives as well. And here's how I think the Holy Spirit enters into our lives. I think it's through personal conviction. Jesus made the word about the individual. If you notice the teachings of Jesus, he doesn't speak about institutional doctrine. Every time I read Jesus, and, and maybe you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but every time I read Jesus, here's what I read. He's speaking to the individual heart and the individual responsibility, right? Consider the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, 7. When you consider that, think about what he's saying. Let's, uh, let's, go, with the, um, uh, let's go with the passage about, uh, about the, the, the log in your eye. You guys want to go there? Uh, let's have a look at that. Let's take a look at the log in your eye. This is a good one because when we're talking about the authority of God and the authority of scripture and the scripture needing to have authority and and that's not being autonomous and coming up with our own ideas but allowing God to be the one who declares the divine command which we we then follow, we need to have some we need to have some instruction because I find that I get offended really quick at the world around me that goes opposite to the direction that I want to see them go. I get really offended when I see people making a stand for this or that, which is, in my opinion, ungodly and the Bible speaks against it and it's an abomination or this or that, okay? Maybe you guys have felt that same way. And I can easily get offended at that. And I can easily want to reach out there and make some changes. I can post about it on social media, and get angry because the world's going to the wrong place. I can make a stink at the local town hall, or I can hold up a banner at, a, at some protest march. But Jesus doesn't speak about our responsibility with institutional issues. Instead, he addresses the heart of the individual, And here he says uh, in, um, he says, uh, let's see, uh, where is this? Which verse? Matthew 7, verse 1. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Judge not that you be not judged. For the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? so authority if we have authority because the scripture gives us authority is that authority so that we can stand up and make a uh, and make a, a moral system which the world around us which doesn't believe by the way in the same jesus that we do that we make a moral system that they must follow and that way we will we will preserve the truth and make sure that our society is right is that how we're supposed to live this out my friends from New York, uh, if you have uh, lived in New York for some time, you may be troubled by the, uh, by the politics of New York. You may be troubled by some of the, the ways in which laws have been written and, and, and things are happening. And, and, and it seems as if there's an erosion of common sense, for that matter, but, uh, but many other things that, that may trouble you as individuals. What is your calling? What are you supposed to do with that? Here in Massachusetts, we suffer from the same, the same fears and we, and we, get, uh, we get outraged by, by the same things. But what is our responsibility? Well, if we're going to be following the narrow way, our responsibility, believe it or not, is very personal. It's about addressing the log that's in our own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Perhaps there is room for us to take specks out of our brother's eye, but not while we are outside of the authority of Scripture within our own lives. Hypocrisy is a big deal. It's the reason why a lot of people say they don't go to church. Have you heard that excuse before? Maybe it's one that you had for a while. Maybe it's one of the reasons why you have a hard time also submitting to some level of authority because there's hypocrisy there. It is a, it is a, a stumbling block for sure. But the scariest thing about hypocrisy is just how invisible it is on our own lives. We can easily pick it out in others, but we can't see it for ourselves. And if we're going to follow the narrow way, we have to see that Jesus is always teaching us about individual application. He's not talking about group application. It's always individual application. Read through the scripture. Find me a scripture where he speaks to the group rather than to the individual. And then let's wrestle over that and see, is he really speaking to the group or is he speaking to an individual? Every time he cuts to the heart of it and the people that come to ask him questions to try and trick him, he ends up going right after their own heart and the issues in their own heart. Because the gospel is about a narrow way. And the narrow way is just one person wide. And you are that person. (laughs) I ran out of time. i got 10 seconds left on the clock. What am I supposed to do with that? This is what I wrote. Wait for it. Okay, there it is. The red's up. It says time's up. All right, here we go. Watch me. Pay attention to that right there. I am frustrated because there just isn't enough time to formulate these ideas and lay them out fully in the short amount of time that I have to deliver them. Also, I want to be faithful to the priority of scripture. I feel that expository teaching is paramount and preferred, and systematic teaching uh, demands frequent appeal to supporting texts. So, I want to be faithful to that and as a preacher, as, a, as your pastor, I want to give you those tools. But <laughs> this idea is so important that it just it has to be addressed. And In order to get to those key points that I think need to be addressed, some of the process of getting there has to be abbreviated because I just don't have enough time to get you there. So I'm asking for permission to assume certain givens without really showing the process of arriving there, but if you have questions about how I arrived at a point. It's taken me all kinds of time to sit and arrive at that point. So come and ask me how I got there and I'll be happy to show you how I got to that point. Okay, I just don't have time to show you all of that now. Um, Let me just read through my notes before I actually close out because there may be one or two things I want to say before the the time is totally up here. The issue of authority is just—it's so important, but we can handle it so wrong. And uh, I'm going to try and make it practical. I was reading—I'm just going to use one specific example, and it's the—it's um, uh, the the education system right now that is that is pushing um, uh, gender identity um, in, in classrooms, and uh, and I know that's a big deal for Christians. Okay, and I read a, a really well presented um uh, resource from the Massachusetts Family Institute uh, just yesterday I was reading through what resources are there out there that can help parents to navigate through this because um, it, it, as, as early as kindergarten uh, our, our kids are being are being taught a way that's very foreign to us and 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 it's 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 not new as such, but it's certainly new within the last 10 years, and we're struggling with that. A lot of parents are really struggling. And parents are taking their kids out of public schools, putting them in Christian schools or in homeschool because they're afraid. They don't want to address with the, address these issues right now uh, with their kids. Their kids are too young, and uh, and they also don't want to address it the way that the schools are are being uh, told to address these things. And they may just really bristle at the at the the um. The overreach, what they feel is overreach, and so I've seen a lot of outrage about this. Uh, you know, whether it's in California or Massachusetts or New York or any of the the more liberal states, the, the um, uh, there are a lot of Christian. There's a lot of Christian activism against these things. And, my, and my, my concern is how do we as a church respond to these things? Because we're not going to become a politically activated church, okay? We're just not going to be. I don't believe that God's called us to that. But I need to explain to you why I don't believe we're going to be politically activated. I want you to be activated internally by the authority of God, and His Word, and then you make decisions for yourself and your family based on that authority structure. That is the narrow way. But we're not going to. I'm not going to go and stand a and picket, and I'm not going to. Uh, I mean, you can do whatever you want to in terms of your responsibility as a citizen of this of this beautiful country in which you live, and you should take full uh, advantage of your of your rights uh, to vote and to vote according to your conscience. And you should, uh, you know, take the opportunity to call your, your senators and your, and your congressmen and, 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 uh, and your local officials and the, and the, and the state legislators and so forth. By all means, you have that right and you should use it as you wish. But I cannot say to the church, we must rise up and do this as a church without denying the very essence of the narrow way. Again, it's taken me a long time to get there, but if, you, if, you, if you'll bear with me for a couple of minutes. Let me explain to you one example from the scripture, and it's just one, but there are many others I could use. But I want to explain just one. In Acts chapter 12, at the end of the, the book, at uh, the end of the chapter, we see a, a, a unique story about Herod, um, Herod Agrippa I, who was responsible for the death of James, the, El- James the, 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 um, the, the disciple of Jesus, the apostle, John's brother. And uh, in, in the lead up to that passage, we see about uh, James and Peter being arrested, James gets beheaded, and, uh, and Peter is miraculously released from prison. That's Acts chapter 12. And at the end of the chapter, we see that Herod, the one who's responsible for James's death. Uh, this this brief story about how he goes down to Caesarea, and in Caesarea he's annoyed he's uh, because the um, or, or tyrant side Sidon, anyway the the uh, the uh, uh, the people are are refusing to pay uh, their tribute and he goes down there to address this issue and he stands up in the in the um, uh, uh, on the in the arena, wherever it is that he's speaking, and he delivers this this excellent oration, and the people stand up and they say, you, it's not the words of a man, this is the words of a God, and he doesn't stop them from worshiping him, as it were and uh, And then the Bible has this very interesting little statement it says, "And he was eaten up by worms and died. The judgment of God fell upon him, and so ends in a rather ignominious way, the uh, the Herod who killed James. Okay, what has that got to do with anything, Eric? Well, I think it's a profound story because it teaches us that our role as a church is not to take down and tackle those who fight against the faith. Herod was the one who arrested and had James killed and wanted to kill Peter as well. But in Acts chapter 12, we read about the church praying. They're praying, and their prayer is faith-filled, but not so faith-filled that when Peter actually shows up at the door, that they actually believe that that's really Peter. Okay, those of you who know the story can uh, be amused by this as well because they just can't even believe that Peter would be released from jail. They think he's somehow going to be released maybe because Herod will release him or there'll be some lawyer who'll stand up for him or something. But they can't believe that God would actually open the prison doors and let him out in the middle of the night. I mean, it's so sci-fi and they didn't even have sci-fi back then, right? Here's the lesson that I believe Acts 12 is teaching us. As believers... We are not supposed to take on the powers of the world. We are to pray and take on the, 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 the powers and the, and the principalities in the heavenly places. Because God will deal with men. We've been given authority to address the issue spiritually. And we must allow God to address the issue in the practical there, I don't believe that there was a prayer somewhere that Herod would be eaten up by worms and die. I don't know. Maybe there was, but I think their, their prayer was focused on, God, would you release Peter from this prison? And when God released Peter from that prison, Peter went out not to gather everybody in some kind of riot against the Herod family, but to go out to continue to preach the gospel because there's something far more important than politics, There is something far more important than whether or not your kids are learning about transgenderism in kindergarten, okay? Horrifying as that may sound to you right now, there is something far more important that you need to be focused on, and that's the glorious gospel of the kingdom of our God. And we can become very easily sidetracked by the moral decay that we see, that others see as an advancement in morality. We are up against a completely different ideology, my friends, and you cannot force your methods upon their ideology. They have to be saved before they're going to change. And so for us to go out into that world and to make the big old fuss about it while denying our kids the reality of a gospel-oriented family that's focused on the gospel, not our physical battles. I think we'd be doing a great disservice. Paul. Isn't schools,
1: by teaching and forcing transgenderism on children, immoral? And shouldn't the church speak up because of the immorality, not
0: political? I think that what we need to be doing, Paul, is we need to show our families What the narrow way is. If we have covenant with God through Jesus Christ, then yes, it's immoral. Okay? But if people do not have covenant with God through Jesus Christ, I have no right to declare it moral or immoral. Because their morality and their system of morality is not the same as mine. When they force it upon us, we take our stand for our families. And if there are multiple families taking a stand for each of those families, then by all means, do so, by all means. And there are ways for us to do that. And The easiest way that you can do that is by saying, I will raise my family and teach my family, and I will protect what is taught to my family. We have that right. That is our inalienable right under our American Constitution. The problem comes, Paul, when that becomes our focus. Immorality cannot be what drives us forward. What must drive us forward is the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The
1: thing that drives civilization is the Holy
0: Spirit. Once it's removed, men will go crazy. Absolutely. And the Holy
1: Spirit within the church is what
0: keeps people from going. Amen, my brother. What we should do, Paul, is we stand here in this place and we declare the truth. And we as families choose that strength, that narrow way. And when we live that narrow way out in the world around us, it will become clearly evident the difference between their way and ours. I cannot, I cannot deny that we must stand up for the rights of our family. But I cannot tell them that they can't raise their family that way. But they can't
1: tell me can raise my children Precisely. The way they
0: want to. Pre- precisely. That's demonic. And so when we, when we look at when we look at the at the the um, when we look at the, the the Old Testament examples, particularly of the the Babylonian uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Um, yeah, the captivity. But before that, when Babylon came and just took over uh, the, the Israel and, and Jerusalem and destroyed what was there and carried the people away captive, there was a uh, a clear a clear description given to us through the lives of Daniel and those and those three boys that we read about in the Book of Daniel as to just exactly how they made a difference in their world. The difference that was made, they weren't powerful enough. To change Babylon as a whole, but believe it or not, the Holy Spirit was powerful enough to do that, and the way he did it was through the individual commitment of each of those. By the way, this is really, really important, and this is thank you for for, for speaking so passionately, Paul, because this is exactly the kind of conversation I want to have, and I feel like this is the conversation this is the way we need to have this conversation uh, amongst us because to just listen to one guy standing up here giving his opinion, is, is, it may have some value. But to hear us wrestle these things out as the family of God and find our way through it together, this is what the Lord wants us to do, isn't it? I can't think of all this stuff. I need you guys to come and th- throw stuff back at me and say, No, what about this and what about that? In Daniel's, in Daniel's way, the, 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 the pathway that was given us, In in the story of Daniel, he was faithful and he honored God. And he put his own life at risk in order to do it. And God showed up. So Daniel's approach to this is a powerful lesson for us. And I have to believe that the Holy Spirit inspired that for us for such a time as this even, because we do have... All kinds of laws that are being thrown at us. Thou shalt not pray, Daniel, three times a day to the Lord your God. And what did Daniel do? He prayed three times a day to the Lord his God. And then he suffered the consequence for it. And when he was not destroyed by the lions in the lion's den, God came and changed everything. And I believe that that's the way God wants us to do it as well, Paul. If we stay faithful to this, Yeah Right? I churches: Yeah. confusing that churches are not I agree with alone. you. My wife and I re- drove by a church just this Friday. Friday morning, we we're walking, and we walk by a church. It's got the rainbow flag on one side, and on the other side, it's quoting Romans saying, "Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind." And we looked at that and said, what does this even mean? What does this mean to them? What does this mean to them? How are they reading that? And how are they not seeing the, the, this, this vast disparity between... How, how can they have that? It, it, it makes no sense. Which is why we want to teach about this narrow way, Paul. I cannot go and pick it outside their church. It won't help anybody. But what I can do...
1: You can run for school council.
0: Yes. Yes, you can. Uh, Absolutely. And that's how America works. It is how America works. And that's how we should deal with it as Americans. Okay? But the universal gospel, which is not only for Americans, but also for Iranians who don't have that voice. The universal gospel is, let us learn that the power of the gospel is in implementation in the heart of the individual. And that's where it all happens. Out of... Our heart will flow living waters, not out of our community will flow living waters, not even out of our church will flow living waters, out of our heart. Because as it turns out, sin and wickedness is not in our community because it's out there. Sin and wickedness is in our community because it's in our own hearts. It's lodged in our own hearts. So we must take responsibility. This is what the gospel teaches. We must take responsibility and we must submit ourselves to the authority of God. We say all of this about transgenderism and we get all upset, but how many of us in this church are addicted to pornography? How many lie to their spouse, to their kids, How many of us carry lust and anger and murderous thoughts in our hearts? How many of us drink too much or use drugs? How many of us watch horrible things on television and entertain ourselves and then come and lift our hands before God and sing praises to Him? Let us take responsibility, my brother, not for the world around us, but for ourselves. And not even for the people within the church around you, but for yourself in our families. And the authority structure that you have is, listen, if you're the father in the home, it is your responsibility to take authority and to establish a godly environment. Don't leave that to your wife to do. And your wife be the spiritual one. And you just skate on by because you're too lazy. Too lazy to say no because you don't want to fight how about we take the authority structure God has given and implement it according to His way if we want to be blessed? I know I've gone so far over time today, but this is powerful, isn't it? Isn't this what we... I mean, you guys have been longing for this just as much as I have. Where else do we talk about these things? Where do we get to hear this kind of truth? Yeah, yeah.
2: Sorry, I just this is just burning on my heart and and i i just want to share this as well and and even in response to to Paul because yes these are things that that we need to wrestle with we need to wrestle with because because the the word says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free and and the truth is is something that we need to figure out what truth are we talking about here are we talking about the truth of of a moral system the truth of society what is truth and we have the truth in the in the scriptures and i just want to share just talking about the story of daniel i think the the power point of the the book of daniel like daniel's life was was his prayer life you know that jesus said to his disciples because Funny enough, it was also the power of Jesus' life was his prayer life. And Jesus said, and prayer life, by the way, is not just begging God. And, and, and yes, it's contending. And it's and it is. There, there's that place of just crying out and interceding. But, it, but you know what? An effective prayer life is a listening prayer life as well. And Jesus said this to his disciples. I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. And so, Paul, it's not. It's not either or. It's not we don't do things um, in society to make things to to make things right yeah. with the exclusion of everything else. It's both and. Yeah,
0: it's first the log and then. But it's the...
2: first. Let us not do what God has not called us to do. And let me tell you what God has called us to do first and foremost. I'm shaken. He has called us to get on our faces and pray. Because people, that is where, that is where the rabbit hits the road. That is where we release something in the spirit that is going to make a difference in the earth today. Let me tell you, you can go in the flesh and stand on your soapbox and fight in your meetings. They are going to be of no impact unless the Lord has told you to do that. And that is that is not a diss on what you're saying, Paul, because it's both and. It's not either or. But let us make sure that whatever. we do we are led by the spirit of the living God because it's in that that life will come it's in that that the love of Jesus will be shared abroad in their hearts it is in that it is in listening to the Lord it is in moving with his cloud because a lot of good ideas are not God ideas we think they are we think that's a good idea or that's a bad idea. We need to not every we are not called to fight every single battle. But let me tell you where we are called to fight. We are called to first and foremost fight on our knees. I am so moved in these last few months and and especially in these last few months to be a person of prayer. Not not a person of of of. Even voice, you know what? Unless I come out of the prayer closet, uh, my voice means nothing. Unless I don't start there, that has to be our starting point, people. That has to be, let us be drawn to, if to anything else, to our knees. Let us cry out to the power of the, for the power of the, the spirit of the living God to, to live through us, whether we have to, whether he calls us to a meeting, because you know what? He did call Daniel to a couple of meetings. Or whether he calls us to just stay in our closet and, and contend. Don't you think for one second that God is not in charge, that he is biting his nails about all the rubbish that is going on out in there in the world? He is not. And he has empowered us but he also has given us wisdom. Yes,
1: Paul. Yeah, Paul. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the church, it has a responsibility, and it has been for a long time since I got saved In the Jesus movement. Yeah. There was a movement of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And revival is coming. Amen. And the church needs, it's not that God is saying, I'm waiting, I'm not going to do revival when God does revival. He's waiting for the church to prepare itself for
0: rebellion. Oh, come on now.
1: And to stand up and speak for God boldly. Amen. And to look for miracles and to do yeah. things and to stand for righteousness and morality. Yeah. And to pray for it,
2: absolutely. But it must also act. Absolutely. Yeah. But we don't act from any, th- we don't act out of our frustration oh, and our oh. place. We act out of a place of, obedience to what God is saying just like Jesus I don't do anything unless the Father calls me to do it and think about the life of Jesus, there were a lot of things that some of his disciples thought he should be doing that he wasn't doing let us us fight on our knees first both and Paul I agree with you yes we have been given
0: a voice we had a we had a beautiful Amen. a beautiful thank you tammy that was really awesome we, yeah we had a beautiful um small group meeting at uh, at uh, jason and julie's on friday and uh, this was the theme wasn't it about prayer at the end of the day it was about prayer and um i feel like the lord's just really wow thank you that's really good um and thank you paul for your uh, passionate yes. um, direction there and helping us to, to work through these things because, uh, because that's how we, we ought to be. And I, and I kind of I w- I want to invite us as a congregation into th- that level of interaction. Uh, maybe, mature. yeah, mature interaction. Uh, it's, it's, it's life-giving because we need to know how to respond to these things. And, uh, and it seems like uh, the church at large is so confused that we, we just we can't see the wood for the trees. So that's why we're going to do this here. We're going to speak about it. And I'm going to show you that the only way forward for us is the narrow way. Outside of that, we may have other responsibilities, moral obligations in the other arenas in which we are. We are citizens of Barnstable or Cape Cod, right? So therefore we have some, and and New York, sorry, Connecticut, whatever. But uh, God bless you guys too. But here we have responsibility in those social settings as well. And we do need to take care of those responsibilities. If war broke out and there was a conscription, you know what? We need to sign up and we need to go and do our, our duty as diligent citizens. If we if we can believe in the war that's being that that, you know that's that's part of our social responsibility, but ultimately above all those things, Jesus trumps every other social responsibility, and the teaching of the Lord is clearly individualistic. He is speaking to our hearts, and we must listen as individuals, not as community even, but as individuals first. Does that make sense? So. I would love to keep you guys much longer because this is so much fun. You have no idea, man. I'm sitting in my basement, and I'm going through these thoughts in my mind and thinking, oh, this is fun. I wish I had other people to bounce this off of. You should come and be in my basement with me sometime. (laughs) Lord, we, we acknowledge that we know so little. But this we know for sure. You have loved us with an everlasting love. Who are we that you should be mindful of us, O Lord? What is this love that you would call us the sons and daughters of God? How great is this love? This morning as we try to find our way through these shallow waters so we don't run aground, would you please show us the clear channel and the pathway ahead? Today I pray for the teachers that are going back to teach in school this week, who are compelled to teach things they don't believe in. We pray for them that they would be courageous and led by your Spirit, that they would not violate their own consciences, but also, Lord, that you would speak a word to them in in this season, that they would know clearly the way that you want them to go. Papa, would you protect our people? Would you set a guard around us, a hedge around us? Would you deliver us from the evil one? And may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. These simple prayers are the way you taught us how to pray. And we'll start there. We pray for all of our teachers, Lord. From those who teach pre-K all the way through college and beyond. We pray for them because they're in the, they're in the front line. Thank you for the agencies that work uh, to give us resources to help us stand strong for our Christian beliefs. We pray for those who are fighting important battles in court, for those who take a stand for our Christian brothers and sisters not to be oppressed or repressed. We pray for them, Lord, that they would have the funding they need to accomplish your will and your purpose and to stave off the, what seems to be an inevitable tide of evil against us. Lord, you are the one who restrains. Restrain, O oh Lord, we pray. And if this, is that time, if this is that time where you are about to return, which it may very well be, then may we look in earnest towards eternity. And may we no longer be caught up in the things of this world. May we be truly conformed to the image of Christ, transformed by the renewing of our mind we pray for the churches around us lord those that have stumbled and fallen we pray lord god that uh, that you would resurrect life amongst those who are not yet not yet uh, not yet lost we pray for those churches in our community that faithfully hold that they would not abandon their post, and that you would comfort them and keep them and provide for them and for us in this time. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.